I'm Ryan Lindrosov, and welcome to Let's Think Digital. I want to start off today's episode with a question. What does government procurement mean to you? For some people, they might think about political scandal when they think about government procurement. Certainly the last few months here in Canada, the federal government's come under a lot of fire for a number of procurement issues, starting with the ArriveCan app that was required to enter the country during the height of the pandemic and the very large multi-million dollar price tag that came out afterwards in terms of how much it cost external consultants to build it. There's been recently in the last number of weeks an investigation looking into the role of management consultants in government, in particular the amount of money being spent on McKinsey and company, but also looking at the broader issues of how management consultancies are impacting government policy. And if we think back, there's any number of government scandals linked to procurement, perhaps most Famously, in the last few decades, the sponsorship scandal back in the 1990s and early 2000s. And so for many people, they may associate procurement with this, this notion of political scandal that can go along with it. For other people, though, procurement might just be seen as that back office boring stuff that keeps the, the wheels of government moving, um, you know, the day-to-day the -day grind of paperwork within government, and, and certainly something that's not as interesting as some of those pressing social and economic policy challenges that governments are facing every day. The reality is this, though. That procurement is actually at the heart of many of the digital transformation efforts that we talk about on this podcast and really is at the heart of digital government. It is, frankly, in my view, impossible to have effective modern government in the digital era if we don't have effective modern approaches to procurement. And so that's why on today's episode of Let's Think Digital, we're going to try to convince you that if you care about digital transformation, you have to care about procurement too. So I'm really happy to have Amanda Clark with us here today. Um, Amanda is an associate professor at Carleton University, um, somebody who I've had the, the pleasure of collaborating with in a variety of different ways over the years. And uh, uh, Amanda, you know, is really, I think, one of the leading experts um, in the academic world here in Canada and globally around what we call digital government. And she has particularly been focusing for the last year or two on the issue that we're talking about today, which is really around the role that procurement plays in either enabling or hindering some of the progress we would like to see around creating a more digitally nimble and citizen-focused government. So Amanda, great to have you with us. Um, and I maybe want to just get you to start off a little bit to, to introduce yourself, the work you're doing, and in particular, you know, how you got into looking at procurement as this big topic, because it's, you know, to be frank, not always the sexiest topic in the world when it comes to public administration. Yeah, thanks so much. It's super great to be here and uh, be on the show. And also, I think um, I'm happy to see that so much attention is being paid to procurement right now. It's one of those things that you know you say like, how did I get into the, focusing on on that particular topic? Um, and I think like if I'm being honest, probably in a lot of my earlier work, I was like a bit negligent in ignoring the role that private firms inevitably play in helping governments develop, design, deliver digital services or in their broader digital modernization plans. Um, 
So it seemed like the time was right to finally jump into it and, and look at this issue um, because, you know, I think most of the research and the policy work in this space has been really focused in the last sort of like since about 2010, when the UK's government digital service hit the scene was on kind of building in-house capacity and how do you kind of integrate in modern digital um, policy design and service delivery methods into government. And so, you know, like the research was looking at things like government digital service teams and um, how rules and policies in the government need to change to enable digital innovation and all that stuff. But it's sort of like this elephant in the room is you're like, yeah, but what about KPMG? Like, what about IBM? And how do you, like, you know that governments aren't going to build everything. That doesn't make sense. Clearly, they have to buy a lot of, like, infrastructure and actual hard technology, but right. software and and services. And so, um it, given that as a, a reality, like how do you structure that relationship in a way that it leads to good outcomes? Um, and that I think is like, well, it's not just a million dollar question. It's like a billion dollar question. And yep. that's why it's getting a lot of attention now at the political level as well, which is which is interesting and welcome. So let's, I almost want to kind of back up to kind of first principles on this for a second before we dive into this more, you know, because we've got people, no doubt, listening and watching this who who don't speak government, right? And they kind of hear procurement, their their eyes glaze over a little bit. And I'm wondering if you've got a good definition or way of explaining what procurement is, right? And how government procurement is different than how, you know, a small business or an individual person might buy something, right? Because at its core, I mean, procurement's about buying goods and services. But there, I mean, my sense is there are obviously there are big differences in terms of how government has to do procurement versus, you know, an individual or a small business or how people might approach this in their daily lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, procurement is really, as you say, just a government, a, a term for the the process by which any anybody, but including including governments, um, buy goods and services. Um, and I think where that purchasing is different in government than say in private industry or amongst like individual citizens is you know one of the the classic differences that always gets pointed to between public and private sector, which is that there's a a public accountability piece. So um, when governments you know are using public funds through taxes to pay for things, you want to have you know, there's a higher standard of kind of uh, expectations around things like transparency and, you know, avoiding conflict of interest and ensuring that public funds are being used um, appropriately. So that's where a lot of the process and the rules come in play. Um, I think the other piece of it is that governments like is a big purchaser, right? So mm -hmm. relative to other firms, um, you know, the federal government of Canada and, and other governments in Canada can, can throw around a lot of money. And so government procurement also can be a driver of of industry, it can have an effect on the market, it can, you know, fuel certain industries over others. Um, so this is kind of where it becomes a bit of a policy tool in some cases as well. Um, and I think the third reason why it's like, unique to think about procurement in a government context is that there's a tension, a, a potential tension between building in house capacity within the public sector, hiring public servants, updating their skills, making sure that governments are capable of of producing their own goods and services um, and having that core capacity to deliver um, relative to sort of outsourcing it or, or buying it out. And that's where the questions around like procurement, does it hollow out the state? Is it part of a privatization agenda? And so that's where it starts to, you know, I think where it's kind of a juicy piece of it from a government perspective. 
Yeah, and there's, you know, there's been an interesting history on this, right? And you and I have talked about this before in the past. I mean, you know, I think back to, you know, let's go back to World War II era, right? 1940s. Um, and, you know, which is still within living memory for some people who are, who are around today. I mean, you know, wartime measures, obviously, but government was able to, to build and procure, you know, huge fleets of vessels and vehicles and, and materials, you know, even in the post-war era, because of a lot of the technical innovation that got driven, you know, out of necessity during that period, government was seen as this real hub for research and development, you know, a lot of the best and brightest wanted to work there, whether it was in cryptography or some of the, you know, emerging computer science discipline. And then, like, over the decades, things changed, right? And, and in particular, I know you've, you've talked with me about this in the past, you know, there's kind of this period in the 1980s, particularly around kind of Reagan and Thatcher and this idea of, you know, the state inherently being inefficient, and we should, we should kind of slim it down. I'm wondering if you can maybe kind of unpack that a bit, because I guess, you know, the, the point that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about is that procurement hasn't always been the way it is now, right? There seems to have been this kind of ebb and flow over history, which, as you say, is sometimes linked to certain kind of political agendas or political ideologies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think on the, the the sort of transition from the state being viewed as sort of an entrepreneurial actor that can like really produce amazing innovations in a way that, you know, the private industry might not be capable of because of its ability to shape both regulation and put a lot of money on the table um, and kind of convene actors. You know, there's lots of tools at the disposal of government that make it a powerful player. And um, potentially, a, you know, a very powerful actor in society. Um, that seems like such a mundane and obvious thing to say, but we have, in many cases, sort of forgotten that, right? And um, part of that, a big part of that was the sort of neoliberal ideology of the 80s. Um, also, you know, like, like, kind of economic downturns, which, you know, over the years, you know, have, have meant that I think we've kind of um, systematically, either by design or in some cases, just through neglect, like, failed to leverage the state as that kind of a powerful actor. Um, you're starting to see the results of that come sort of to like fruition in a, well, that's the wrong term actually, because it's sort of like a rotten fruit because right. <laughs> basically, um, you know, now we have these issues of massive service failures, um, things like the Phoenix pay system in Canada or in the US, the classic example is healthcare.gov, but you don't need to go to those big examples. You see it all the time in, in the kind of the ways in which it's been, um, you know, the state is falling behind in its ability to kind of meet modern digital service expectations and modernize its processes. Um, and so, Part of that is just that, like we hadn't, we haven't been um, bringing in those modern digital skill sets into the state. Instead, it was kind of primarily, you know, something that we were outsourcing. That whenever there was a digital need, there was a huge reliance on private tech vendors and management consulting firms, especially. So, um, you know, it's not surprising that we're in the mess we're in because you know we kind of like let the muscle atrophy. Um, and then now it's like not capable of doing much heavy lifting and no one should be surprised by that. Like that's an inevitable outcome of that, of that approach. Um, so it's exciting though, however, despite the kind of mess we're in to see this global orthodoxy that is catching, catching on around, okay, we know we're going to have to buy from private firms, but what would it look like to have a kind of core of expertise in the state to be a smart shopper, to work effectively right. with these players, and also to build in-house when it makes sense to do so, and then kind of maintain digital systems after you buy or build them. And that's where things like the Canadian Digital Service come in, um, and where initiatives like 
even the Digital Academy at the Canada School and the work that um, is being done like broadly, including a lot of your work um, through Think Digital and kind of building the digital capacity of the state. Yeah, because it's you know it's interesting important. I think it's 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 useful not to have it get lost that that I don't think anybody is realistically saying that government should do everything right in the digital space right. Like no one I think is 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 legitimately suggesting that government should be building all of its own apps and software and hardware from the ground up. There's mm-hmm. clearly cases where it just makes sense right to be able to buy something off the shelf or or contract out. But I think this point of kind of atrophying you know the, those those kind of muscles around how to do that effect such an important one. And I mean, I certainly saw this during my time in government as well, because even if you're going to bring in outside expertise to do that, you've got to have people who are managing that contract, who are providing oversight, who are providing direction, you know, who kind of who understand, you know, enough about this to be able to, to a- ask good questions, to be able to, to hold it to account, to be able to kind of steer these projects. And I think we've seen just the reality that we're, we're not there in a lot of cases right now. And so it's, it's, it's an important one, I think, to kind of pick up on. Um, so in, in this context, Amanda, I mean, you've been over the last uh, year or two doing a really interesting kind of deep dive into IT procurement, particularly with the federal government here in Canada. Um, I'd be wondering if you could take maybe a few minutes and just, you know, share a bit of, of what kind of the big findings were behind this, um, you know, what the genesis of the project was and, and kind of where, where we are today. What's the current state of procurement when we're talking about federal government in particular here in Canada? Yeah. Um, so, so basically, um, you know, there were sort of like two streams to this research. So one side of it is interviews that I've been doing with public servants, not just in Canada, but also kind of um, broadly uh, internationally um, uh, to, to understand like what the relationship is between the public sector and private tech firms and management consultants in the digital sort of service delivery and transformation space. So speaking to people who are on the front lines in digital service teams, for example, mm-hmm. or procurement offices and getting a sense from them of like, how does this relationship, where should we be worried and what's working well? Um, and and there, I mean, it's been fascinating to hear some of the consistency across responses. It's largely like you said, an awareness that this clearly matters um, to get this right and that you're not going to build everything in-house. I only had, of all the interviews I've done, I think one respondent said, no, everything should be built in-house. And Hmm. they were taking at it, if I'm being honest, more from a kind of pro-union perspective as opposed to a like, you know, they had a kind of different like framework for evaluating. Um, But all that to say, so that was clear. And, And then, you know, I'm happy to go into more of the findings around around that uh, on on sort of like the conditions that like allow the relationship to be healthy. Um, the other piece of the project, which is the one that's received a bit more attention in Canada recently, is looking at the Canadian um, federal procurement data. And this was done in partnership with a federal public servant, Sean Boots, um, who came and did a residency with us at Carleton for uh, for a period of time, which was great and a totally awesome like thank you treasury board and canada school of public service for funding that and making it happen it was it was wonderful um and and so working with a team of ras um sean and you know who who really did kind of the the bulk of the work and kind of getting this beautiful website up to date created um a site that you can go take a look at govcanadacontracts.ca and essentially what we've done there is we've taken the 
um, data that was released through a proactive disclosure requirement of the federal government to describe um, all federal contracts, not just in the IT space, although that was our main interest. Um, and we, you know, turned it into a tool that makes it easier to search and analyze. Um, and so from that project, we we were able to then dig into the IT contracts specifically, um, which in some cases are hard to identify. It's not always obvious. There's tons of problems with the data and, and lots to do in terms of making it easier to, to, to be precise. But um, we could make some conclusions. Conclusions, um, and we basically wanted to evaluate the extent to which federal IT contracting aligns with best practice globally. And we know from studies like the Chaos Report, which was a U.S. think tank that basically looked at IT projects, uh, software projects in like both private and uh, public sector, and through a whole you know large scale data set, they they mm-hmm. sort of were able to determine that basically small contracts lead to success, and large contracts with long durations, so high dollar value, but also many years included in the contract, um, almost always fail. So we created like a series of rules around like what would a good contract look like. Um, The other piece of it we looked at was um, the extent to which open source was ever prioritized. Um, We looked at questions about how much is spent on sort of um, buying contractors as opposed to paying for in-house IT staff. Our findings found that on, on, on all measures, the government of Canada appears to clearly be breaking um, best practice in modern IT procurement. Um, hmm. And so we put forward some recommendations to fix that. Um, recommendations that pick up, they're not taken out of nowhere. They're largely borrowed from what's working well in the UK and in the US context. So things like introducing spend controls, having caps on how long a contract can um, can extend for um, prioritizing hiring uh, in-house IT expertise, um, prior like having kind of default to open source, um, all these things that are you know to anyone in this space like really obvious. But we wanted to really illustrate in a powerful way that like we're not following these rules, and that's why we're spending so much money and not getting much for it. Um, so. I'm hopeful that somebody who has power to change these things will pay attention to that. Um, but it seems like most of the political attention right now is focused on the specific issue of management consultants and whether or not there's some political scandal to do with the prime minister's office, which we can get into as well. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and I do want to talk about that a bit because, as you said, there's been a lot of kind of political oxygen on this topic as of late for, for reasons that are maybe somewhat, somewhat tangential to this, but, but at least are kind of bringing some of this to light. You know, I just want to say, I mean, I, I think it's a it's an amazing piece of work that you and Sean did. As you know, I'm a huge fan of, of, of Sean Boots. I used to work with him back when I was in government. Um, and I, I think it's actually the work you did is an interesting open data story as well, because just, just for our listeners who might not be aware, you know, for well over a decade now, the government's had kind of proactive disclosure rules around contracts where they have to publish all of their contracting. But I think shockingly, really, I think until you and Sean did this project, you couldn't really go somewhere and say, hey, how much did the government of Canada spend in a given year, right? Because it, it was on every department's website in different data formats. It was published publicly, kind of. But, you know, there was some some pretty interesting, you know, kind of civic tech hacking to do to be able to scrape all that data and build one consolidated database and, and, and put it together. So just to say, I think this it's an interesting kind of case study of you know, how open government and open data doesn't always get you useful things. And there's a lot of kind of extra work that has to happen to make that useful. But I think the the headline, Amanda, if I'm right out of that, at the end of the day was we're at about $15 billion a year that the federal government is spending on um, on contracting. Is that am I right about the, the number on that? 
Yeah, the 2021-2022 figure, which is the last year that we have uh, for our analysis, uh, for obvious reasons, <laughs> um, is, yeah, $15.1 billion in total in contracts uh, across all. And uh, that excludes the Department of National Defense Commission's right. review committees of offices of parliament, partially because national defense has, you know, they're buying incredibly expensive things and it can really skew the numbers. So we kind of... Yep hive that off but yeah it, it's a it's a big it's a big figure um well we also and, and, look- and, and, and that's what i was going to ask you was you know like do you think it is a big figure right because i think that that's one of the interesting pieces of the debate that that's starting to come up um i recently saw an article by michael warnick former clerk of the of the privy council head of the public service for for canada a few years back and you know he was kind of making this argument to say okay we spend 15 billion a year on you know consulting on contractors of various types we spend fifty billion a year on the public service itself, right? In terms of the the three hundred and fifty thousand plus public servants that work for the federal government, you know. And he was, I think, kind of a little bit implicitly in that article, kind of making making a bit of a counter argument to say, you know, what is the right balance on this? And so, I'm curious from your perspective. I mean, is it about the dollar figure, or is it about how the money's being used? And you know, as you said, kind of the size or duration or structure of some of these contracts. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question and it's a good point he raises. Um, this has also come up in the committee hearings around um, the 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 uh, management consultants. So this is you know, happening in the House of Commons. Uh, the uh, Government Operations Committee is looking at this, and they've you know the Mona Fortier, Minister for uh, President of the Treasury Board, rather was there this week saying you know like the public service has also grown like at a proportionate rate to these contracts with management consultants. So maybe like this is just the cost of doing business is going up, right? Um, and so I think to to Michael Wernick's point, like is 15 billion too much? I mean, not necessarily. There's no clear, like if you had a very active government that was doing lots of things, like a very ambitious policy agenda or a really expansive view of social welfare, like the cost of government would go up. And there's a lot of people who are very pro-government folks who would want to see that number go up because they right. would want more more things, more social housing, more transportation, whatever. Um, and so I think it's really the question of like how the money is spent and what accountabilities you have around it. Um, I can't comment on all procurement because I'm not an expert in like shipbuilding or, you know, I mean, there's lots of things the federal government buys that I know nothing about. Um, but on the IT side, I think we have very clear evidence that the amount of money that's being spent is, um, it, sorry, the way the money is being spent, rather, not the dollar figure, but the way the money is being spent is breaching best practice. So um, contracts that are exceeding, um, you know, um, you know, in, in, the, in the hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases, but, you know, we just, we know that the evidence suggests that those are going to fail, right? Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't build in scope to do user research, to prototype, you know, you're committing to an end product before you know what's going to work. Um, what we advocate for instead, and it's sort of a recommendation that's agnostic about how much you spend on IT through contracting, but rather it's um, it's it's uh, sort of the size of the contract and also moving towards a modular contracting model. So this is something that's, you know, there's a really great guide that 18F, the US, um, one of the US digital service teams has put out there describing this model, but essentially the, the gist is like, keep your contracts small and short they don't recommend going over under over uh, sorry over two million dollars even mm-hmm. for any given contract. That's not to say that a project might not cost more, but a given software project, a, con- a software contract, um, and it, it, if the contract is capped at you know uh, a, a two years, let's say, um, then 
you have room to switch vendors if they're not delivering. You, um, you're, you're better able to kind of bring together multiple vendors and have them work together. It also favors the use of open source because then you're thinking about, well, how can we coordinate these different, right. different approaches? So, I mean, that's kind of where I think the interesting work is to be done. And then, you know, how much we should be spending um, is kind of more a question of like, how ambitious is your policy agenda? Um, maybe the only space where you'd sort of question it is, um, if even though overall, I think hiring in the public service has expanded in tandem with the cost of management consultants, let's say, I would say that the ratio that we spend on in-house IT talent versus what we outsource right now is is out of balance. And yep. when you talk to public servants working in this space, anecdotally too, they describe like, some of the things that we're hiving off and giving to tech vendors and to management consultants could could be done better in house, um, and uh, we're not getting much value for money there as well. So that's that's I think another another sort of specific area where I'm like mm, the balance is not quite right, you know. Yeah, and and so you know on this topic around tech vendors and management consultants, this has obviously been you know uh, the headlines have been talking about this over the last few months in a way that that we sometimes haven't seen, frankly, certainly not in the in the IT and digital space. And you know, I think we had two big cases in the last number of months. Um, certainly, the the revelations around the Arrive Can app, uh, which for those who aren't familiar with it, was uh, the the travel um, app that the the Canadian Border Services Agency contracted out. Um, ended up costing, I think, thirty, forty plus million dollars, which came out to be able to build, which people thought was excessive for for what it was doing. And then more recently, some revelations about the government spending a lot more money uh, with McKinsey Consulting in particular for management consulting support around some different policy areas and, and some concern about political influence given linkages in the past um, to the government on that. This has led to a number of parliamentary committees studying these two issues over the last few months. You have been invited, I think, to both of those studies to, to testify before the parliamentary committees, both around ArriveCan and McKinsey. Wondering, Amanda, if you could give just maybe a little bit of color as to as to what it was like being at those committee hearings and kind of, you know, where the discussion and where the questioning was going. And if you've got a little bit of a read on, you know, from the political decision makers and elected official side of things, you know, what what are they kind of um, uh, uh, cluing into on this or really kind of focusing on? Yeah. So I would say like the. First of all, one thing we haven't had a lot of in Canada uh, relative to other jurisdictions is political scrutiny of this question of like digital government and capacity building in the state. So this was, to me, a really exciting development um, mm -hmm. because in other places like the UK, for example, in the US, as soon as the political level started to get upset about this, things changed. Like there was money on the table, there were lever like policy levers were given to the right people, et cetera. So maybe that I was, I'm hopeful. I don't know if it's necessarily going to come out of this process, um, but because uh, one of the if if I could like track how I think this got on the agenda, I mean, you had the Globe and Mail a couple for the past few years reporting on how much the federal government spends on McKinsey. And then as a result, I think management consultants generally captured the the minds of these of these committee members. So they, they had actually three studies. They had a study initially just on outsourcing, which I was like, oh, this is cool. And then. Arrive can hit the news and all the concerns around how much the federal government was paying essentially like a middleman agency to be a staffing agency and hire hire people to develop this app. Um, and then the third study that hit was this McKinsey um, specific study, which 
actually is talking about the same things that those two other studies are talking about. So there's a little bit of confusion and some of it is just driven by politics and I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are this, what is the committee interested in? What are they asking about? There are definitely some committee members who are primarily concerned about McKinsey as a firm for its ethical record and basically saying like, why is the federal government spending you know, so much money, um, like a, a great, because ex- it's it's grown quite a lot for McKinsey. It's actually a smaller amount of money than other firms, but it has grown a lot um, in recent years. And so mm-hmm. they're saying, why are we spending money on a firm that is implicated in driving the opioid crisis or that is like hosting, you know, um, corporate retreats next to like in basically, well, as one committee members calling them sort of concentration camps. And, you know, like there's lots of I think justifiable policy discussions to be had and, and about whether this passes sort of the integrity rules that we have for procurement in the federal government. And if it doesn't, if that's a failure of that regime. And to be fair, I think that when the uh, Minister for Public Services and Procurement came, like um, her deputy was actually very forthright about that and saying that, like, maybe we do need to reexamine the integrity rules. So that's an interesting policy discussion mm-hmm. that's happening. Um, there's other committee members, though, who seem much more concerned about why are we spending money on these management consulting firms when this work could be done in-house? Like, why aren't we building the capacity of the public service? And that, to me, is like the most exciting and important issue here um, because there we have, I think, you know, the, the growth in, in reliance on management consultants in the federal government should be a cause for concern. Um, and it's also an inevitable result, I think, of two things. One, not bringing in the right talent and expertise and modern competencies into government. And that's partially a failure of the HR process, which the committee has talked a little bit about, but I don't know if it's going to get much attention. Um, but they're certainly aware that, you know, the average time to hire in the federal government is too long and and the CIO Catherine Luello has done a good job of illustrating the the issues just of like a lack mm-hmm. of talent in the Canadian market so it's like hard to get people into government and I made some suggestions on how you could do that and it would mean kind of creating a new regime basically to make it these special IT workers who are really demand in high demand like to make it more appealing for them to work in government. There's lots of things that could be done. Um, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is like, even when you have that talent and you do have a lot of talent in the federal government, like I definitely, that's not the takeaway here. It's not like there's mm-hmm. a bunch of public servants who don't know what they're doing, far from it. I think it's that historically, and this is very well documented in the Canadian public administration literature, we've kind of mired federal public servants in excessive oversight and accountability regimes that really prioritize kind of top-down centralized control and that make it very difficult and in some cases incredibly frustrating to try to be nimble in the federal government, to try to move forward initiatives. And, you know, this is partially a response to a hyper competitive political and media environment. It's partially a nature, you know, over the years in response to things like the sponsorship scandal and the grants and contribution boondoggle, um, you know, and, and communications controls that were implemented or maybe strengthened under the Harper government. Like, there's yeah. lots of reasons why this exists, but that's the state we're in now. And I think unless you both, like, deal with the talent pipeline issue into government and also free up current public servants to do the good work they're capable of, when a minister asks for something and they need it done quickly, they're probably going to turn to a management consultant who can, like, get you a team tomorrow and they will do anything you ask them to do and they will promise and and they'll, they'll be able to deliver it is a good quality some cases yeah but in other cases like it's it's inappropriate to be spending that kind of money when you have staff on hand who should be doing that work and frankly who want to 
Well, and there's, yeah, I mean, I mean, and there's inherently, and I say this as somebody who is, you know, who, who used to be a public servant. I, I now, you know, work as a consultant and, and do work on the other side of the fence with, with our company, Think Digital. I mean, you know, there's a space, obviously, to get outside advice and outside expertise. And in some cases, there's specialized expertise that might not make sense for government to have in kind of large pockets. But there's clearly an issue somewhere that, you know, government writ large, but certainly senior management or elected officials are feeling like they can't get what they need from the public service. And, and mm-hmm. they're having to go out where outside as a result of that. And, and I think one of, like, one of the interesting paradoxes around this whole procurement question is, like, I think everybody hates the procurement process as it is right now. Like, you know, um, staff in government hate the process. I can guarantee you that because I've been on both sides of it. You know, it's slow. It's frustrating for them. I mean, they can't, you know, there's all the hoops they have to jump through that take forever to be able to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I think the procurement departments or the procurement organizations themselves are frustrated because, you know, everybody's mad at them. It's, it's, you know, they've got this burdensome set of rules they have to work with. The businesses who are trying to work with government don't like it. And I've been through this myself now being on the other side, where even for somebody like me who kind of speaks government, I can navigate through these processes. But man, it is complex and opaque and difficult to to go through, let alone like if you're a tech startup, a small tech startup company in Canada that might have something valuable to do with government, there's no way you're going to even try navigate some of these very complex procurement rules. So all that to say, it's like we've got a procurement system that everybody's unhappy with, it seems. And I always kind of turn my head to like, you know, what are the underlying kind of incentive structures in the systems that have kind of led us there? And and I know you've touched on this a bit, but maybe just, you know, as we start kind of closing out the conversation, I'm, I'm like, I'm curious to get a little bit of your diagnostique as to like, how did we get this like, you know, multi-headed beast that like nobody's happy with, but 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 that we also seem unable to change. Yeah, there, I mean, and there's a whole field of research around rule proliferation in organizations and how these regimes can like you know, become more complex over time. Um, I do think that there's a kind of default in the federal government that is particularly acute relative to other jurisdictions to add more process and more rules um, in order to manage risk, as opposed to acknowledging that in some cases, those administ- that, like as, as if adding a rule is cost-free, when we know that every time you add a rule in a process or an oversight body or a reporting requirement, it's an administrative burden that someone has to deal with, right? Yeah. Um, and it can actually, uh, you know, make, it doesn't necessarily de-risk a project. In some cases, it adds its new risk because it means things are delayed or that people are not focusing on the actual outcome, like, for example, making sure a service makes sense to users. Um, So this like focus on internal compliance as opposed to does this generate public value as a metric of success, right? Um, And so that's a pretty, pretty like rampant problem across the federal public service, especially in the procurement space. Um, One of the things that I've cautioned the committee about and that I'm concerned about is if the response to the if their recommendations is are basically like, well, clearly procurement is out of control. We need more rules. You know, let's have a like let's 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 add a new officer of parliament. Let's add new reporting requirements, and that will make this problem worse. Um, frankly, it also favors the incumbents because, as you know, like yeah. there's the procurement process. Given it's burdensome for public servants, but it's also burdensome for firms. And so the more requirements you have, um, the more likely you are to just get big, big firms coming in. And I think um, there's a whole, and this is where it gets exciting about thinking about what could good partnerships look like, right? And 
And this came up in a lot of those interviews that I was doing. And, you know, there's a whole range of firms on the outside of government now um, that are really focused on public value. Of course, they have a profit motive. I mean, it's a consultant. That's the nature of their business. But they also are aligned with kind of they, they have the values of wanting to kind of build public sector capacity, leave government stronger than they found it. Often these, you know, newer consulting firms in the digital space are um, staffed with sometimes former public servants, um, you know, which in some cases, you know, I think a lot of these other firms are too, but they're kind of from the digital space and they, they, they're, they're, there's a, a fluid boundary in the gov, gov tech space, right, between like actually right. working in the public service and working for some of these kind of civic tech type organizations. And these firms don't partner much with the federal government even, and it's a huge untapped resource. Um, and so I'd like to see us thinking more about how we create space for those kinds of firms to partner with st the state and provide surge capacity um, so that it's kind of like a two-track thing. On the one hand, we're gonna build a lot more capacity in government, um, by loosening up the rules, creating space for people to actually be nimble and apply these methods without having to convince, constantly convince people that it's okay to do things like user research, for example, yep. bring more talent in, but then also think about what the ecosystem outside government looks like and how you can better kind of work with some of these um, kind of public value oriented, um, like mission driven type organizations. Um, I guess what I'd say if I could be blunt is, um, you know, the minister uh, of the uh, president of the treasury board and also the minister for procurement both repeated in their testimonies to the committee that they they really felt it was responsible and prudent to turn to outside players to check the work of government that working with management consultants especially on things like digital initiatives was an essential way it's like a responsible policy approach because you're not just working in house in an insular way um and I thought that was like both true and untrue because no one's saying that public servants should do this all on their own, far from it. But if I had to turn to an outside player, like I wouldn't turn to KPMG, I wouldn't turn to McKinsey for modern digital expertise, maybe in some cases, but these aren't the people you should be, who should be checking your work or who you should be, I think, turning to for surge capacity on, on digital delivery. Like that's not where that expertise Strictly yeah. lies. Well, and and there is, I think there's just there's a risk for government writ large where if it as an organization feels that it doesn't have the capacity itself to decide what's good and what's not in this, like what does good digital service delivery look like, that's a fundamental weakness in my view of of the state, right? Because I mean, if you're completely dependent on outside organizations to tell you if this is good, bad, ugly, or somewhere in between. That's that you know you're, as we said at the beginning of this conversation you know it's it's a symptom of that hollowing out of of the capacity within the state to be able to do this and mm -hmm. yeah I mean I think I think that's concerning right that that disconnect that that somehow there's been kind of a, a lack of trust between the public service and and political leaders in, in it seems like in some cases where they feel like they're not getting the types of answers and responsiveness they need but I I think you're you're bang on Amanda in terms of kind of where that problem is stemming from it's it's you know these successive layers of rules accountability regimes etc that in my view kind of give us the illusion of of de-risking but actually you know we still have huge project failures right what it does is it alleviates any individual person from taking you know accountability because they can say well i checked off the boxes on the checkbox right i did the governance process you know and things like phoenix then happen where you know no individual person seems to be accountable for that yet we have a massive system failure even though yeah. it you know even though it checked off all of the boxes in the governance processes all the way through 
through right up until the moment that it launched and it spectacularly didn't work. Uh, right. and, that's, and that's problematic. Especially when there were signs throughout that it was going to fail, right? And yep. I mean, the Auditor General at the time, his appraisal, uh, it was Michael Ferguson, I guess, at the time, it was basically that, you yes. know, this was a product of a lack of courageous leadership in the federal government, that we have a kind of, um, you know, move things along and check the box, but don't stick your neck out type culture. Um, I think we need to, like, really look at that. This also came out in a study that um, that uh, was produced out of the Brian Mulroney Public Policy School at uh, St. FX recently, I think in partnership with the IOG in Ottawa, yes. um, basically finding that, you know, uh, senior leaders in the federal government don't feel like they can speak truth to power anymore. So there's this issue of like, I think not having leaders who are willing to like call out um, failures as they're coming and and try to work in new ways, because that's viewed as risky, even though the current status quo is clearly leading to these risky and, and problematic like failures. Um, the other part of it, though, is I do think we have a senior leadership that has never been asked to understand technology, right? It's never been, it's always been hived off as something that the IT folks do. And even then it was like, well, IT is probably just gonna like contract it out. Um, and we have to really break that myth, like understanding digital, understanding how it plays into your policy program or, you know, the, the kind of broader like service mandate of your department, like that needs to be something that you understand intimately as a public sector leader. You don't have to be a developer or a coder, I'm, I'm saying, but I think um, just pretending that the IT stuff is like a nice add-on that can happen later as opposed to something that needs to be baked into early kind of policy planning and that you are taking an active role in overseeing and managing, um, that's really a problem uh, that we don't have that expertise. Um, and there's gonna be a combination, hopefully, of more executive training in this space to try to remedy that. Um, and then also, I think, you know, straight up hiring like some different types of, of leaders to come into the federal government who who have that tech expertise, you know, who can um, and, and that like until that happens, it's still going to be a sort of uphill battle for the folks who kind of get it in the middle ranks yep. or on the front lines. Um, yep. Because like, you need your deputy to be excited and to demand that a project has modular contracting or has user research baked in. If they're not asking for it, it's you're not incentivized to do it, right? Yeah, well, and, and I would argue you need your deputy to think that way. You also need your minister to think that way. I think we're, we're going to need both you know, public service leaders and political leaders to be able to think intelligently and, and nuanced about these issues in a way that's going to drive it forward and mm -hmm. you're speaking my language as you know I'm, I'm passionate about this issue around you know digital leadership and capacity building and, and getting there um you know amanda i mean last last question for you as we kind of wrap up the, what has been a fascinating conversation on this um you know, I mean, clearly we've talked a lot today about some of the challenges around procurement. I mean, I think when we look globally, there are some bright lights and we're seeing jurisdictions, you know, I, the UK comes to mind where they've taken some innovative procurement approaches. In Canada, the British Columbia government, I know, has done some really innovative stuff around kind of agile um, based projects or, or procurement mechanisms uh, for digital teams coming in. So there seems to be some movement happening in places around the world. What's your, you know, maybe kind of a, a closing thought on this. How optimistic uh, or pessimistic are you about change coming? I mean, we, you know, as we've said, there's a little bit of political attention on this right now, which is great. What's your gut sense as to if this is going to turn into anything real? I I don't know. I've I, the last few years I've been a bit of a like a downer in that I've usually concluded 
when someone asks me, like, what do you think the future holds, is that we need a massive sort of citizen facing failure that has real political costs for 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 the government for this to, to change. Right. Um, and that's a kind of sad thought because that failure might look like old age security checks not going out. Right. Which like right. has real implications for people who are dependent on that money to pay for medications or whatever. Um, so I, I hope we don't have to go there. But I in other cases, that seems to be the way you get this change. Um, this committee, like, I think partially because there's this question of, you know, is the Trudeau government favoring McKinsey as a kind of like buddy-buddy relationship? Like, that's becoming a bit of a distraction from what I think is the core issue. I mean, I'm hopeful, though, in as much as, like, I've actually been impressed with members of the opposition. I think MP Stephanie Cousy, for example, who is, um, like, likely slotted to be working as a future president of the Treasury Board if there's a change in government. Um, you know, she seems to be really paying attention to this issue of public sector capacity. And I'd like I'd like to see um, a future government, um, whether it's like, a f- <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I, I feel like maybe the Trudeau government, they started off with a lot of ambition around public sector reform, and it hasn't really gone anywhere. So um, it, I don't, I'm, I don't, doesn't have to be another government, but I, I could see it being something that Maybe maybe this could be a, a way to drive that interest in, in a future government. Um, I think the problem is always that we most Canadians don't really care about civil service administration. Right. Um, it's not something that's a hot button political issue. Um, and so it doesn't tend to be something that like um, a government's willing to put a lot of effort into. It's also one of those classic kind of issues of the electoral cycle doesn't favor things that take a long time to change because by the time you improve HR processes and build the digital capacity of the state and clean up procurement, it might be like the other ones who are in power and benefit from that, right? So it's not an immediate win and it's also not a win that has a lot of salience per se. So I think the work for people like you and me is to try to translate to political leaders why not building digital capacity will affect the things they do care about. Like it means you won't be able to deliver on all those policy proposals you've put out there. Or if you're a kind of political leader who's concerned about efficiency within the state, that's another narrative that we could play right. into as well. So like, I think there's, it's a failure as well, perhaps of the kind of advocacy, advocacy community around this, like myself included, to really translate to Canadian public leaders, like why it's frankly absurd and irresponsible that we continue to manage the federal public service the way we do. Um, and like, I think we have to do a better job of communicating why that needs to matter to them, um, basically. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, I always like to kind of say that I think digital as a topic is is a nonpartisan issue in a sense that everybody wants, you know, I think across the political spectrum wants government to be more effective, more efficient, you know, to, to work better, to be more modern. Uh, but I think you're right. And this has been a thread that's come up a few times in, in some of the podcast episodes we've had so far is that perhaps we have not done a good job of making the case around that and why it matters. So, so let us hold out hope that, um, you know, some of this attention it is getting right now does translate into into tangible action. I think it's an interesting moment, you know, in these discussions. And, uh, you know, I'm personally happy that it's a bit more on the radar now than it has been in the past. And and frankly, Amanda, happy that you've been able to be speaking about this publicly and getting involved in the in the conversation and, and the work that you and Sean and others have done. You know, I think sometimes having numbers and actual research behind this makes it much more concrete than the sometimes abstract discussions we have about it. So, so really glad you could join us today um, to unpack these topics a little bit. And I suspect something we'll be talking about more in in the future. So thanks again so much, Amanda. Really great to have you here. 
Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun, Ryan. So a big thank you to Amanda for joining us today. Amanda is really one of the, the leading academic experts in Canada around how government is is modernizing itself in the digital era and feel very fortunate to have her on the podcast and have the opportunity to work with her more broadly um, in the work that we do at Think Digital. Um, I really encourage you to check out her work, including the website she mentioned, which contains the result of the large procurement study that her and her team did, which is available at govcanadacontracts.ca. So what do you think? We'd love to hear from you about what you thought about this episode and your thoughts on this topic around government procurement and the links to digital transformation. You can reach out to us on social media using the hashtag Let's Think Digital or email us at podcast at thinkdigital.ca. And remember, if you like what you've heard, please spread the word. Give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. Let others know about the podcast and like and subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Mel Han. Thanks so much for listening and let's keep thinking digitally.